if you'd uh, uh, followed me out of uh, my house tonight, uh, you'd see me get in the car, you'd see me drive 200 yards around the road, and then you would have seen me take a left, a left, and a left again, and drive past my house again. Now, some of you will know why that is. I have a memory. The memory is that on two occasions, uh, I forgot to shut the front door. And so I tried to work hard, and this morning I got it down and, and was fine, and more, more times than not, I can work it out. I say to myself, as I come out the door, the keys are in my hand, I have shut the door. I forgot to do it tonight. And so what happens is I get to the corner of Coles Lane, and for whatever reason, the corner of Coles Lane triggers, have you shut the front door? And at that point, I can't remember whether I have, and I have to go round again. Now, some of you will be thinking, he's mad. Most of you, I hope, are thinking, not that you maybe have the front door experience, although some of you may be panicking about that now, but most of us have things that have shaped us negatively. Memories of failure. And a lot of what we do becomes uh, tainted by the things that we've got wrong in the past. Uh, a few weeks ago in the morning, we were, or a few weeks ago, we were telling the story uh, that uh, where Kate uh, helped me find my credit card, even though I didn't know I'd lost it, is it dropped out of my phone, and people on social media were looking for the person who it was. And as a result of that, I constantly check that my credit card is in my phone. And we're going to think about... Uh, the memories of failure that shape us today, things that we've got wrong, maybe this week, mistakes or deliberate things, things that happened without us planning, things that have gone wrong over the last few years. How do we deal with memories that hold us back? Regret or shame or fear? I just thought it was interesting that the story is all about the king and his men, and I'm sure it's not intended to be about Jesus, but there's something about the truth of this, that the king, Jesus, wants to help us get back after failure. And I want to look this evening at how memories of failure can be transformed. And we're going to look at the second to last story in John's Gospel. We'll finish it off next week. We've been chuntering our way through uh, John for, for centuries, it would feel. Uh, last time I was talking about the way in which Jesus encourages Thomas in his doubt. And at the end of that, we heard Jesus, uh, sorry, John say that uh, the, there are many other things that Jesus did. And that's important to remember that the, the New Testament isn't the, the definitive explanation of Jesus. It's that which the writers felt they wanted us to hear. There are many things not recorded in this book. But these that John has recorded are written that we may believe 
and have life. And we looked at that at the end of our last time together. So we're going to go into John chapter 21. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. I said this this morning, but I will say it again. I have no idea where that picture is. A, I didn't take it. And B, the chances of it being the Sea of Galilee are very unlikely. I'd never been to the Sea of Galilee. I just imagine it might possibly look like that. Doubtless some of you are going to email me and tell me it doesn't look like that. Never mind. It's just a picture for those of you who get concerned and anxious about these things. So, it happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, known as Didymus, we learned that that meant twin last time. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's not uh, Dougal and Florence, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called to them. Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, this is a memory for many of the guys in the boat, certainly for Simon and for John. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you will know that a very similar event had had happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry with the disciples where they were fishing again and they hadn't caught anything and Jesus was with them and said, put the fish again on the other side of the boat. And uh, they said, Master, we worked all night, hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the net. Notice it's Simon who says that. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And the result of that is we read it in verse 8, that Simon Peter saw this. He fell at Jesus' knees. And he said, I'm just, you are so greater than me. Get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Not that he really wants Jesus to get away from him. He's just going, I am so utterly useless in comparison to your greatness. Let's go back. So that's a memory. Let's go back to our story in John chapter 21 where it feels like the same thing is happening again. The disciple whom Jesus love the disciple who knew he was loved that's John the writer said to Peter it is the Lord because he remembers and it it triggers and he knows this is Jesus but Peter is probably struggling with another memory he's struggling with a memory from just a few weeks or days ago it's the memory of what happened when he followed at a distance Jesus who'd been arrested on the night he was arrested and as he was being uh, tried and uh, Jesus had said to him before that night, he said, look, you're going to betray me. And, G- and Peter had said, no, I won't. Everybody else will, but I won't betray you. And they said, aren't you one of the man's disciples? 
And he replied, I am not. And we read that it was cold. And they stood around a fire. And I hadn't particularly noticed this until somebody pointed it out to me today. And just keep an eye on this fire. Peter was standing with them, warming himself. And if you recall, and you can find on our podcast or our YouTube channel when we did this passage, you'll recall that John flicks between this stuff outside and the interrogation of Jesus inside. So he goes backwards and forwards. So we pick up a verse or two later. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. He's still by the fire. So they asked him, aren't you one of the disciples? And he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. If you don't know what that story is, again, go back and have a look at our channel and you'll see. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster begins to crow. And Jesus, uh, Peter realizes that that which was predicted and warned, he's fallen for it. And so that memory, undoubtedly, from what we're about to see, is going around in Peter. So you get this kind of confliction. He knows now that that person over there is Jesus. He's met him risen uh, a couple of times. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And this is the third time he's seen Jesus. And the disciple... John said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord. Now, what does he do? Now, I know some of you know what he does, but what would you and I do? I think the temptation would be to run away. Remember that what the first account caused him to do was to fall on his knees and say, I'm a sinner. And now he's much more aware of his sin because he's denied Jesus. He's let him down. He was bragging and confident that he would stay with Jesus and that he would not have the fear that the others would have, but he did. And very often with us, with the stuff we get wrong, the temptation is to run away. It's to go, I can't face you, Jesus. And I think that many of us here will be tempted in the future where there'll be a time in our lives where we get something seriously wrong and we will be tempted to skip church. We'll skip our time with Jesus. And so I can't face the guilt. I can't face the shame. And run away. So does he run away or will he go to Jesus? Will he repeat that experience of going, I'm a sinner and falling at his knees and crying out to him? And I wonder how we are shaped by the memories and experiences of failure because they do affect us. Sometimes what happens is that the memory creates an exaggerated fear where that thing that we thought never could happen because it did happen, it becomes bigger in our mind and we fear it and we're apprehensive. And the confidence that we had that everything would be okay is gone. And those people will say lightning never strikes twice. We feel, well, because it has, it could. 
because we've got it wrong before, because this has gone wrong before, it can happen again. And so for many of us, failure creates an exaggerated fear. For others of us, it creates a lack of confidence. I just can't do it anymore. God, I'm not good enough. God, I can't follow what you're asking of me. I can't be who you want me to be. And for others of us, it's this deep-rooted shame. I'm a failure. I'm useless. And probably the vast majority of us suffer in one shape or form from low self-esteem. And that will be a combination of our own failures and other people's response to it, either their ridicule or their anger or their rebuke. And we're all shaped negatively by this stuff. And just as Humpty Dumpty didn't have the courage to get back, he was physically put back together again, but emotionally not. And I imagine Peter, this turmoil going on. But he jumps into the water to go to Jesus. Why does he do that? I think he does that because he has learned over the three years who Jesus is. And he has come to understand and be convinced of the grace of Jesus. He's seen it on the cross and he's seen it in the upper room. He's seen it in so many contexts and each time it surprised him. But perhaps he's got it. That Jesus welcomes the sinner, the broken, the unwise, the foolish, those who have made choices that have got themselves into ridiculous places. And we may have taken paths that have been disastrous. We may have... um, got ourselves into situations we wish we could get out of. But Jesus comes to calm our fears. At our church meeting, we read, and you can, if you read, and if you subscribe and read the email, you'll see in our church meeting, we looked at this passage. It talks in 1 John, perfect love casts out fear because fear is to do with punishment. And Jesus wants to calm our fears that we're not good enough. And the the love of Jesus gives us confidence that we can be restored, rebuilt, renewed, transformed, that the Holy Spirit of Jesus within us can make us better than we were before. And Jesus has come to heal our shame. He's come to die on the cross that we might be free, that we might know his forgiveness. So he jumps into the water ahead of the other disciples who follow, towing the net full of fish. And we're not far from the shore, about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire. Remember the fire? 
there was some fish on it and some bread. And they, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. And Peter climbed the board and dragged the net ashore and it was full of fish, 153. People wonder about that. Why was it such a specific number? And uh, there are people who plan all kinds of meanings for the number 153. What symbolizes it, it means? It probably means that there were 153 fish in the net. And you go, well, why did they, why has John told us there are 153 fish in the net? And the best explanation for this is that he knows that because they needed those fish and they divided them up amongst those who had caught them. And that was their income that day. And they probably made quite a bit of money. And they had 153. And I don't know how they divided 153 between the five or six of them, but they divided it up. The point really is that it was a memorable abundance. He remembered that there were so many fish. And so there is an accuracy and authenticity to this moment that John wants us to note. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Why did they know it was the Lord? Well, we've just looked at it. There were memories of what he'd already done. They were reminded of the last time he'd said fish on that side of the boat and it was full. There were memories of that voice that said with authority, this is what you need to do. And they recognised not only the action that Jesus calls them to, but I suspect they recognise the command. And they also recognise the welcome. There he is, got the, the, the fire going, and he's ready for them. And they know that's Jesus. And it's interesting that he says, come and have breakfast at the top. Well, it may be interesting. You may be completely bored by it. But I think it's interesting. He says, come and have breakfast. And then the next verse, he says, and Jesus came. Well, why would Jesus say, come and have breakfast? And then he came. I think it's because John wants to sort of underline something, that this is at the instigation of Jesus. He is coming to them. He is coming to Peter. And he took bread. And here's a memory. Here's another memory. It's a memory of, again, that evening before uh, he denies Jesus, where Jesus takes the bread and gives it to the disciples, what we would now remember in communion. And he takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. And it's quite deliberate. He takes the bread. John wants us to see that all the time the memories are being, uh, the good memories are being reinforced to outdo the bad memories. Jesus is coming and saying, I'm here for you. And he did the same with the fish. And I may have told you this story before, but many, many years ago, I went on a, a Christian conference and they wanted to enact. This is called the last breakfast. We, we're familiar perhaps with the last supper 
where we uh, reenact that with communion. And I, I went on a, a conference many, many, many years ago where they thought it would be a really good idea to do the last breakfast. And so we broke bread together, just as we do in communion. And then we uh, shared fish together. Well, I, I, it sounded like a really lovely idea. Um, but I need to tell you that cold fish fingers are not very pleasant and not very easy to pass around. We all got greasy fingers and it just and you feel people gagging as they were trying to eat. Anyway, so uh, that's why at communion we pass bread around and not fish um, because it's just harder to do. Uh, so when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon. Now, remember that Simon was called Simon and then Jesus said to him, I'm giving you a nickname. You're going to be known as Peter, which means rock. You're going to be the one on whom the foundation of the church is built. You're going to be strong and reliable and dependent and other people will look to you. So I'm going to call you Peter. Only he doesn't call him Peter. John says it's Simon Peter because he wants us to know he's trying to help us because it's confusing because it's slightly difficult that Jesus doesn't call him Peter. He goes back to what he was before he was called because Simon has not been a rock and he is taken back to the place of vulnerability He's taken back to the first time Jesus calls him. And sometimes with the stuff we get wrong and the things we have failed in, Jesus needs to strip away the layers we have put on and bring us back to a painful place of who we really are and how we need him. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And we struggle with the concept of love because we think it's a feeling and we think, well, do I love Jesus enough? Do I feel it enough? But really love is a choice. But what he's saying is, do you love what I'm about? In other words, Simon, do you love that I am embodying and proclaiming and acting out mercy and grace. I am the one who tells the kids to come down the tree. I am the one that doesn't throw a stone at the woman caught in adultery. I am the one who talks with the woman at the well who's had multiple partners. I am the one who uh, dies on the cross for you. Do you love that? Do you love what I'm about? Do you love the very core of my being of mercy and grace? And do you love, Simon, that I am now calling you and have been calling you throughout John's gospel to love others? Do you love this command? Are you really on board with what I, my agenda, which is a community of people who choose not to, to feel something for people, but to enact something for people, to choose to be people who love even our enemies? Simon, do you love this? Are you on board with this or are you going to deny it? Are you going to walk away? Are you going to pretend it's difficult? Do you love my kingdom because I've come to proclaim the kingdom of God on earth? And are you on board? Are you with it? Do you love me? And then he adds a little phrase. He says, do you love me more than these? 
Who are the these? The these are the other disciples who got out of the boat, who you imagine are kind of awkwardly looking at their feet, thinking this is an awkward moment. <laughs> He's asking Peter, Simon Peter, our leader, whether he loves Jesus more than we do. Why does he do that? Most probably because he's reminding Peter of his brag. Even if all fall away, I won't. I am braver than all of these, he'd said. And Jesus is bringing him back to that self-sufficiency, that moment of arrogance, that moment where he thought he was better than everybody else. And he's saying, are you the same? Is this still you? Do you love me more than these guys? Are you still arrogant? And are you still, have you become, or have you become self-aware? Maybe Jesus asks of us in response to the messes we have made in our life, are you still self-sufficient? Or will you now depend on me? Do you still think you can do it all in your own strength? Or are you now ready for my filling, my spirit and my help? And Peter very clearly doesn't say, yes, I love you more than these. He just says, I know, you know that I love you. And there's a sense that he has changed just in the way he responds. And so Jesus says, feed my lambs. I want you to nurture and care for and look after those who are following me, those who want to know me. I want you to be a leader. I want you to be a person that cares. And forgiveness that Jesus is bringing to Peter always brings then a a responsibility. We are saved not that we might just enjoy singing in church. We are saved that we may make a difference in the world, that we may be a part of bringing the kingdom of God in. And so as Jesus washes and cleanses us from the mistakes we've made, so he says, now go and do this. And so we might ask ourselves, what is... Or who is God asking us to nurture? Which colleagues, neighbours, friends, family, people this week, maybe the same people as last week, maybe people we don't know we're going to meet, but who is he just saying, I just want you to look after them. As you have been loved by me, so go out and love. So Peter is restored. Hooray! And then Jesus does it again. He repeats it. Do you love me? Why does he repeat it? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep, says Jesus. And Jesus is saying, will you love me when it's difficult? Because I'm asking you again. Because before you denied me. And it's easy to say, yes, Lord, I love you. It's easy to raise our hands in worship. It's easy uh, in the company of other Christians to say yes. And Jesus drills down and says, do you really love me? Do you really love mercy and grace when it means you have to be mercy, merciful and graceful? Does it, do you really love grace and mercy when you resent that other people are forgiven or Jesus asks you to forgive? Do you really love me, Simon? 
Do you really love my command to love others, even when you have to love your enemy, when you're tired, when nobody appreciates it, and maybe you're criticized for doing it? Do you really love me? Do you really love me when it's hard and difficult? And these are questions that Jesus asks of us. Are you ready to follow me? We thought in our uh, call to prayer this morning, which you can again look on our website and see, we talked about taking up our cross. Do you love me, Simon? Is this really what you want with your life? Or the moment it gets difficult, the moment people accuse you, the moment you're surrounded, yes, by a fire, will you back down again? Or is this really it now? Will you serve the kingdom even when you can't see it coming? Even when you feel in a wilderness of unanswered prayer? Even when others criticize and ridicule and attack, are you really on board with me? Simon, do you love me? Donald, do you love me? And and, and Simon said, yeah, I, I do. I really do. I really do. You know that. And Jesus does it again. Now, we now can see why he does it again because three times Jesus, uh, Simon has denied him. And so the third time Jesus is saying, I'm taking you back to that experience. We're going to relive it and we're going to heal it. And the healing of shame and difficult moments of mistakes and accidents isn't through burying them. It's through bringing them to Jesus. And he has to face that he denied him three times. He's confronted with it and he's hurt. He's hurt because Jesus is pointing out what's gone on before. And sometimes it's painful when God puts his finger on us and says, you know that in your life, it's got to stop. You know that in your life, you need to apologize for that. You know that in your life, you need to move away from it. Because we like to blame other people or have excuses or reasons why it wasn't our fault. But Jesus is putting his finger right on on Peter. Peter was hurt. Perhaps he's not quite as ready to move on as he thinks. And sometimes Jesus breaks us and it's painful. And healing from difficult experiences can be painful. Where we're forced to confront what we did. So I wonder if we are hurting because Jesus has pointed something out and we're uncomfortable in that place. But the good news is that Jesus ignores the hurt. It's almost like he says, good, the hurt's out now. Feed my sheep. I'm still wanting you, I'm still calling you, still have a purpose, you still have a future. And the failure is acknowledged, it's dealt with, it's moved through and he's reinstated. You are gonna be my man. The next verse is a verse we're gonna look at in our final sermon next week. And we'll skip a verse and Jesus concludes, follow me. He says, copy me. He says, obey me. I want you to follow me. Jesus wants to send us out 
not by ignoring what we've got wrong, but by bringing a transformation, by facing our frailty and moving beyond it, by allowing it to become not a hindrance, but a strength, a thing that's redeemed and restored. So in a moment or two, Noah is going to come and lead us in responding together to God. But I want to, to give, give us some, some questions to reflect on and to ask ourselves. And the first one is, how are we shaped by memories? Is there guilt or shame or moments of failure and mistakes that hold us back? And in the quietness of the next few moments, maybe we just want to bring them to God and acknowledge them. And are we prepared to love Jesus and his way, even when it's hard and it's costly? And grace and mercy and compassion and generosity are difficult but are we going to say, yes, Lord, I love you. I mess up, but I love you. I want to be a part of the kingdom coming. I want to give myself to something more significant than just having more stuff on this earth. So who is God asking us to nurture, to love, to care for, to feed, to look after? Which weary, vulnerable or broken person is God saying this week I want you just to be alongside them I want you to feed them I want you to look after them I want you to bind up the broken hearted I want you to set free the prisoners I want you to bring hope in a land of hopelessness so what might following Jesus look like this week We'll leave those questions there for a moment. I'm going to invite Noah and the band to rejoin me. And we'll just ponder those questions quietly for a minute or two. Stand with me. Lord, we bring our memories, our experiences of failure, the moments and the habits. The specifics we remember and the general attitudes that we've forgotten. And we bring them to you. And we say we're unworthy, but we, we come to you. Place these at your feet and ask you to forgive and to restore and to heal and to rebuild 
and to renew us.